Hi, and welcome to another episode of Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive of what's happening in the food, wine, and hospitality scene. Now, sometimes we do passion projects, and sometimes we do travel trends, and sometimes we like talk to the lady around the corner making jam in our basement. But whatever it is, it all comes back to the industry. Now, if you're joining me for the first time, today. Hi, welcome, either on YouTube or on any podcast site. Um, let me tell you a little bit about myself. So I'm Nikki Nellis. I've been covering the DC food, wine, and hospitality scene for the last 20 years. It all started with the listareyouonit.com, the online e-zine that tells you everything that is happening in the food and hospitality industry. Every event, every opening, every promotion, all the hot goss is there. So you should, of course, check it out. And that led me to doing regular stints on WTOP, where you hear me all the time. And also, David, my husband, and I have Foodie and the Beast, the only food and wine variety show in the district. We've been on air for just over 14 years now, and you tune in every Sunday. And lastly, here we are at the gorgeous Wine Lair, the private wine club adjacent to the Ritz-Carlton Hotel uh, in downtown DC. And I love being here because I'm surrounded by some of my favorite things, like all these fantastic wine bottles. Now, of course, you follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, so you can see all of my great eats and travels because Per usual, I'm doing a lot of great eating and a lot of great drinking and a lot of great traveling. So let's get to it. So speaking of travels, I just came back from New York City, did a quick trip up. Uh, my last guest who was with us, Michael Bauer, who was in town from Israel, uh, he was doing a huge event in New York City about his fantastic book that we talked about, but also brought together uh, the Reality Israel group. And this is that wonderful group that we talked about that takes uh, people in all different professions over to Israel to grow professionally and personally through the lens of a foreign country, specifically Israel in this standpoint. But they do take people to other countries as well. And I can't wait because I'm going to another country with them. But we'll get to that later. Uh, anyway, while in New York, I was in Williamsburg and we had an amazing brunch at 12 Chairs. If you had not had an opportunity to eat there, you must check it out. It is Tel Aviv-style food. Um, it's little and quaint, and the hummus is scrumptious, as is everything else there. So do check that out. We also, of course, we're, oh my God, how can I forget? We had cocktails at High Lot. Jen Shore owns this amazing cocktail bar. It's basically like an 80s, uh, feel cocktail lounge where the parents would have cocktails. And then next door is her fabulous bar, which is like the basement where the kids play called Joy Face. So we had cocktails like adults at the bar. And then we went to Joy Face and danced on the bar. And it's so much fun. Uh, it's not easy to get in. But if you ping me, maybe I can hook you up with Jen. Uh, let's see. We did get a big slice at 3 o'clock in the morning at Village Square because that's what you do when you're in the city. Um, and we just had an all-around good time. So I also went to Charleston, uh, not in South Carolina, but in Baltimore, Tony Foreman and Cindy Wolf's restaurant. It's one of the last bastions of fine dining in the mid-Atlantic region, white tablecloths, but it's not stuffy or fussy. The food is fantastic. And it's a 25 plus year old restaurant. So I'm always, um, 
delighted to go to a place that is packed on a Tuesday night and um, filled with people really having an amazing meal, terrific food. But what's most impressive to me, other than the wine list, because the wine list is fabulous, and they do three-ounce pours and six-ounce pours for their by-the-glass section. And this is no slouchy by-the-glass section. I had a Jean-Marc Brocard Chablis, which was delicious, a uh, Chateau Neuf de Pape, the Domina de Marcoux, which is a white Chateau Neuf, and it's glorious. Um, And I also had this amazing Margot. So these aren't wines that you can normally get by the glass because they're so pricey and expensive, but they do it there. And um, a three ounce pour doesn't hit the wallet nearly as tough. And lastly, I will say the hospitality there is um, so on point. You know, if you feel like chatting, they'll chat with you. You don't feel like chatting, they'll leave you alone. But they're just perfectly on it. And that's what you want at a fine dining establishment. Okay. So that's a little bit about where I've been. But again, follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. And you can keep up with all my great eats and treats and travels. All right. Let's get on to today's show. So Amy Riolo. I don't know how we met. I was trying to figure that out as I was putting this together. But Amy is an award-winning, best-selling author. She has, I have 13 books, but you have more than 13 books, right? There how are many? more coming out. Right. Yes, there okay. are three coming out this year. <laughs> 13 books. She's a chef. She's a television personality. She's an educator. And Amy is really one of the world's foremost authorities on the culinary culture of Italy. Now, We'll have to figure out where we met, but what I do know is that when we did, I was just fascinated by her story and by her incredible wealth of knowledge. Um, So you've joined David and I on Foodie and the Beast. I can't even count how many times. It's one of my favorite things to do. It's it's always so fun. fun. (laughs) But when you were on in January, because you were talking about all your fabulous products that you're now doing, um, I said, I got to get more of you. So that's why I invited you on Industry Night. So Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Nikki. I feel the same way. I'd rather just hear you continue for the rest of the hour. <laughs> we can me. talk about me later. Well, let's talk about you now. So let's just talk a little bit about you and your background, because I'm sure a lot of people are like an authority on Italian culture and cuisine. How does somebody get that status? Oh, thank you. Um, well, last year I actually got three professional titles, um, all from Italy. One was from the Italian Academy of the Mediterranean Diet in Calabria. There's an actual um, entity that that's what they do is, is uh, review who's doing what in the Mediterranean mm-hmm. diet in the world. And they gave me an ambassadorship role for the U.S. for two years, which I'm very proud of. Mm-hmm. I was doing it anyway, so it's nice to have the, <laughs> the title. And Well, then, and you know the Italians like to give like accreditation right, where accreditation right. is due, right? Exactly, exactly. And there's the Italian Association of Foreign Press that named me the Italian Ambassador of Cuisine in America um, last year also. And then a, a media agency in Rome called We the Italians named me an Ambassador of Mediterranean Cuisine of the, the entire Mediterranean. And that's very important to me because I value my role in what I do within Italy, but I've also worked a lot and done things around the Mediterranean. And I like talking about the synergy, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's Israel or Egypt or Morocco or Italy, there's so much similarity to talk about too. And so it's, it's nice to be able to do that as well. Well, it all falls under the Mediterranean, Correct. which we'll get into, but how did you get from where you grew up as a little girl to sure. here? So where did your passion for all things Italian come from? 
You know, it's a long story. I grew up in a town where... Um, well, we have like 45 minutes. So, you know, <laughs> figure that out. Sure. Okay. Great. So I'm from Western New York State, a small okay. town called Jamestown, New York. I was born and raised there. Um, I lived on a street um, in the, a rural area. It was just my grandparents and my parents and myself. So it was it was very similar to what people would grow up in in, in rural Italy. It wasn't like a cosmopolitan environment. Mm-hmm. And then I started going to school. And a lot of people in the school were of Swedish descent. So I was very different than them, you know, in appearance. Right, and, dark and hair, right. <laughs> and I was always, when I would hear my family talk about something Italian, it was, there was this close sense of closeness and a sense of familiarity and, and endearment mm-hmm. and all of that kind of thing. So I wanted to always explore that a little bit more. And, you know, fast forward later on in life, when I went to Italy for the first time, I realized that everybody on this side of the pond had a twin in Italy. We all, you know, Uncle Vito here had somebody over there who looked like exactly like him. And just one was speaking in English, one was speaking in Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, they looked at me and they it was the first place in my life when I went back to Calabria that nobody asked me where I was from. Mm. They just, they never asked me. They just assumed I was from there. And, you know, my. Now, did you already speak Italian? Like, did your family, did you grow up in an Italian speaking no. household? No. Okay. It was all English because, like a lot of other Italian Americans, we had lost the language, you know. Mm. And in those days when people were coming, there was a lot of discrimination and prejudice. And not only did they not teach their kids because it's, it wasn't that they didn't want to send the language, but they wanted to give them more opportunities. Right. They and want so everybody they were, to blend in. Just speak English, you know. And, mm-hmm. and that crossed over other cultures too. So we were a, a victim of that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. So I always wanted to learn Italian, but I didn't have it. But by the time I went to Italy for the first time and everybody was just speaking with me, I think it was in my DNA because they just kind of absorbed it. And I spoke back in Italian and I didn't have to really formally study. I mean, I'd formally studied other languages, mm. but not Italian. So um, that also meant a lot to me because then when I learned Italian, finally, I was able to really communicate with my family, have conversations that you wouldn't get to have through a translator or through, sure. you know, uh, a telephone or something like that. And it changed my world because I felt I felt felt like I found my place. I felt like I found who I was, mm-hmm. my sense in the world, and also to, I, to be that bridge between the relatives here and the relatives there meant the world to me. And so I, I wanted to do everything in that capacity, it had nothing to do with a career, just you know for for my own sense of well being and and also for this relationship. And I heard I had heard a long long time ago that the great grandparents that came here all wanted to go back but they couldn't sure. and there was one my one paternal great grandfather who was actually saving money in his backyard you know they didn't believe in banks in those right. days he was right. saving money in the backyard the to go back to Italy right. and he never made it mm. and so when I go back I feel like I'm living his legacy I don't know why but it's it became very important to me and once that happened um I would just noticed like how much healthier people were there and I said, we have the same DNA. You know, we have the same genes. Why are we not all this way? Well, a lot of the lifestyle got lost. A lot of the um, daily traditions, the, the really rich traditions that um, people just kind of, quote unquote, don't have time for in America, mm-hmm. got lost. And, and I said, that's what we need to discover. So I said, you know, I want to bring this back to the United States. But it was really just for my family. I wanted to help my own relatives. Mm-hmm. And later on, it grew. I was like, no, there are a lot of people that But what that was it this. that you were noticing? First of all, let's talk mm-hmm. about Calabria because it's... It's not an overlooked region, but when people are traveling to Italy, mm-hmm. they may not know what the region of Calabria is. Sure. You know, they think Tuscany or they think up north or Sicily. Do you know what I mean? They think of different regions, you know, exactly. Florence, Rome, Milan, big cities. Right. So tell us about Cal- Calabria. So Calabria is the southernmost region. And I like the way you say it much better than the way I say it. So, okay. <laughs> Thank you. It's the southernmost region on the boot right before you get to Sicily. If you're driving by car from Rome to Sicily, for example, you have to cross through Calabria. Mm-hmm. 
and take a ferry to get from there to the through the Strait of Messina and mm-hmm. into Sicily. And um, it was a strong Greek hold. You know, during Magna Grecia times, they came to Calabria first. Mm-hmm. And Pythagoras actually had a school in Crotone, which is where my family's from, on the Ionian Sea. Mm-hmm. So you can go and literally be where Pythagoras taught in the school. We have a square named after Pythagoras and many things. We have a temple of Hera. Many Greek ruins. My father's cousin, uh, Mario, also his, his last name is Riolo, he was a, an excavator. Yeah. And during his career, he found like 600 pieces from Greco-Roman Byzantine times in wow. Calabria. Uh, the name Calabria comes from Calas Bru, which meant fertile land mm-hmm. in ancient times. But yet when I was growing up, if I would look it up in an encyclopedia, it would say that it was industrial, dark, unfertile and that's why people had to leave <laughs> it was so wrong then when you get there and you see you're nestled in between these beautiful mountains and the sea you know on the, on our side we have the ionian sea on the other side they have the Tyrrhenian, and of course the, it, the south is the mediterranean sure and it's like it's just so beautiful hard to describe we have a mm-hmm. lot of castles from the spaniards that came mm-hmm. um so like the the castle of carlo uh, Charles V is in, right in the downtown area. And then we have another place called Le Castella, which was an uh, Aragonese castle from, from Spain, um, a little further down. So it's a real mix of cultures. It's, it's really like interesting. the core of the Mediterranean because mm. you have the, the, you know, Byzantium, you have the Greeks, you have the Romans, you have, um, the Spaniards, you have the French. And uh, each one of them left their their hold. And you can see the last names of the people. Like my mother's maiden name is Greek, even though as far as we know, they were in Calabria for like thousands of years. Mm. So it's it's really, really a beautiful place. Okay. And let's talk about the lifestyle there. Because you sure. said you got there right. and there was something about the lifestyle that really spoke to you. Right. It, it wasn't how you were living here in the United States. So what was it? It's textbook, you know, stereotypical Mediterranean of eating communally, Mm. um, taking siestas in the afternoon, doing as much outside as possible, eating as locally as possible. I mean, um, you know, I remember when I first went back as a teenager, my cousin's family that I was staying with felt guilty if they brought something to the table that literally they did not grow. Not even like the neighbor next door. Like it had to be from their own garden and, and their own animal that they raised. Mm-hmm. And there's just this sense to the, to eating as close to you as possible, as fresh to you as possible, not wasting, mm-hmm. you know, um, respecting the calendar, like holidays and, and traditions and things like that. And they all just come together to create this sense of community and calm, you know, because at the end of the day, this you go to Sardinia a lot, so you know when, when they go okay. and study. I've been once, <laughs> well, twice, but I'm going back, so not a lot. Let's not over, let's not over traumatize. <laughs> well, it's a that blue trip. zone. You huh? know, it's a blue zone. I'm sure you will go back many times. <laughs> and, and when they study, they find one of the things you know that's common about what makes people be a centurion is the communal lunch every day. Mm. They know no matter what happens, they're going to get together with a group of people and eat. And there's something very reassuring about that. And we can do that here. You know, in, in a lot of my work and my books and my blog, I talk about you don't have to move to Sardinia or Calabria or Icaria to enjoy this. You can, the way that we carpool to save our environment and to, to save on gas, we can eat that way mm-hmm. with others. It doesn't have to be a romantic date or a, or a, you know, blood relative. It can be someone that you just get together with or a group of people you just get together with to eat because you know that that has benefits and that it's good for everybody. Well, I think for, um, I think if you look through history in the United States, especially after the Industrial Revolution and probably really post, I think probably post-World War II, not only were people trying to shed 
their roots yes. in order to fit in and and be Americans. But I think there was this sort of propaganda that wasting was at, like showed that you had a lot, you know, you could waste because right. you had so much. Right. There was sort of a pride in wasting food, throwing things away. Do you know, you know what I'm talking yes, about? And not it's so important, not respecting the food that you have, you know, especially, and then obviously there was the commercialization of food and the industrialization of food and all the processed food. So like, there's so many things that got built up during that time period that I really do believe that people are trying to find ways to dismantle now because right. our health clearly is a problem and right. our earth is clearly in a problem. So all these Things do need to be fixed yes. in order for all of us to live well, including the planet we live on. So when you came exactly. back here and you decided, okay, I'm going to pass this on to my family, mm -hmm. but how did you, where was that next step to business or writing or cooking or how did you figure that part out? It took a while. It was literally just family. Um, and I was working at that time in the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. I, I had a completely different um, outlook on life. I thought that food was just something that women did. I never thought it would be did you cook? a career. Did you cook? I cooked for my family mm -hmm. and, you know, different people had done different things. So my mom would dabble in catering and my grandfather was a cook in the army, you know, mm -hmm. so I had like different, different things that would make different people. My grandmother, of course, I baked with her, but I never thought about it as a profession. Mm. And then I went through a serious illness myself, and I was legally um, disabled for three years oh and in bed. And I thought about, you know, if I live, like, one of the good things about being that unwell is mm. that it gives you a lot of clarity. Mm -hmm. All of the clutter in your mind just goes away because there's there's no purpose for it anymore. Right. So it was, it was a very clear time, and I kept thinking, you know, what would I what would I do that if I lived, like, because I would want to do something really, really worthy of mm -hmm. this life that, you know, we have. And it, I just kept hearing cook and write and cook and write. And, you know, so I, I, those, I knew that those were the modalities, but I didn't know, you know, exactly about what. And then the more I did it, the more it just came through. Like, I have a privilege to be able to see this drastic difference. And, you know, maybe I can help inspire some people to do things a little differently, including mm -hmm. myself. And, um, and if I, if I have a shot at it, I'll try it. And then I wanted to also have this uh, portraying the cultures. So it wasn't just like someone telling you, Hey, eat this because it's better for you or because you'll live longer. But it's like, this is why. Well, and this it's is a how. lifestyle, right? I mean, I think right. that's what's so, I, you know, when people talk about the Mediterranean diet, which I find almost offensive, because it's not a diet. It's, a, yes, I guess, depending on how you use the nu a nutritional terminology, diet. But sure. it's not a diet specifically to lose weight. It is right. a lifestyle. It's not like low carb or keto or whatever the diet du jour is, you know, to lose weight. This exactly. is about how to live. Right. So you sort of, how did you evolve to that? Because did you sort of commingle? Like, did you sort of come up at the same time as, as these sort of traditions were becoming rich again? Like, how did it all happen? No, I was, I was really on the cusp of the Mediterranean diet and I kind of just happened into it because I was at the time when I was writing, I was trying to write books about Calabria. Nobody knew where Calabria was. Right. And at that time, also in the, in the food industry and in the writing industry, every ethnicity had a box. Mm -hmm. And so like, you know, if you were Spanish and Jose Andres already got there, like, sorry, <laughs> doesn't matter if you're from I know, Barcelona so or somewhere else. Because when we talk about the regionality, right. like what's, what's being made and grown 
and put on the plate in the south of Italy is right. totally different than what's going on in mid-Italy and what's going on up in the north, right? right? I mean, it's incredible. Exactly. But nobody cared. And so I, I needed to work. Right. And I didn't I, care, so it doesn't matter. I had this new lease on life and they, you know, that was just taken. And then I was also doing a lot of cultural bridge building work just mm. as a volunteer with NGOs and nonprofits and things on my own. I was traveling a lot to North Africa and the Middle East mm. and um, Cooking Light magazine said, we consider you to be a North African expert. Mm. Would you do an article on Morocco for us? So I was like, sure. And then I had been spending a lot of time in Egypt because of a nonprofit that I was chairing there. And, you know, then that led me to my second book. And for, because nobody else well, was, was writing. What was your first book? My first book was called Arabian Delights. Okay. Recipes and princely entertaining ideas from the Arabian Peninsula. Cool. And with that, I was in Saudi Arabia. I was a guest of the Royal Protocol and they asked me um, my, I, my publisher had literally turned me down. I was staying in guest palaces and they turned me down in the, in the palace office for my book, which was um, on Calabria. Then I tried to do a Mediterranean diet one. They said, no, there's a lot of those. You're an unknown author. Mm. And I said, they said, do you have any other ideas? And I was like, look, I'm in a palace right now in Saudi Arabia. Like, <laughs> Saudi Arabia. No, I don't have any other right. ideas. Uh, that was the last thing from my mind. And then they said, that's the book we want. Nobody's written about that before. Nobody's talked about that. So I said, okay, but if I well, do Well, because it, honestly, when we think of Saudi Arabia, we're not thinking about the cuisine. Right. Right? Right. And I said, but, you know, I want to talk about the whole peninsula, everybody who was there, all mm -hmm. the monotheistic faiths, you know, do history, do culture and put it in food. So I did that. And then um, I got the offer for the Egyptian book. Mm. And so I started working on that. Same idea, though, I wanted to put a lot of culture in there, you know, the Pharaonic times, the Jewish times, the Christian, everything that was in there, the, mm -hmm. all the different Muslim caliphates. And um, that went on to be very successful. And it went into second uh, edition and it won the World Gourmand Award in Paris. Mm. And so then I'm still trying to talk about Italy, but nobody's letting me talk about Italy in America <laughs> until I go to, to Abu Dhabi. And I'm doing a, and they said, sure, you're Italian. You could talk about Italy. I was like, but don't you have other Italians? They was like, yeah, but you're different. You could, and I was like, oh, okay. So I started talking about Italian food in Abu Dhabi. Then the American Diabetes Association and I met. Mm -hmm. I told them about my idea for a book. Um, and they said, okay, why don't you do a Mediterranean diabetes cookbook for us? Mm -hmm. Because at that time, a lot of the books with the American Diabetes Association were, and they it's were not bland. that way anymore. I mean, but they were bland. They were it bland. It was really about bland, you know. Iceberg lettuce, yes. grilled chicken. And, the, but then on the cover, they'd have a chocolate cake made with like a fake, artificial sweetener which is also bad for you yeah and right. i said you know you need to have things like the way that the fishermen eat in italy or the way that the shepherds eat in spain mm -hmm. like that's what we should be eating and they were like okay send us a proposal so i did and that went on to become very successful and then they started doing other books of other cultures mm -hmm. and my book uh was their best-selling book and won the nautilus award and then that came out in second edition okay um and so then i said then by then the mediterranean diet started to become a thing right so i said okay there's a place the world wants it i know it mm -hmm. i'm gonna I'm going to go with but that. how did you sort of deep dive? I mean, I know you, with your family in Calabria, you, you found the culture and it, it, it resonated with you. But what was it about the foods and the artisanal food items? You know, sure. the kinds of pasta, the kind of eating, um, the olive oil, all the wine, all of it. What was it about the regionality there and what was available and how they were eating there sure. that you were able to take away and then serve up to people. Sure. For me, it's the main underlying factor was like the pride about food, mm -hmm. that people take food so much more seriously and so much more important. You know, if you love someone, you're going to give them literally the best thing that you can give them with your hands. And at the end of the day, 
for our health, it shows, right? Because pesto sauce isn't just pesto sauce. It's pesto sauce if you make it with a really good, you know, uh, basil and a really good olive oil. It's going to have a whole different effect on your body. Sure. And if it's part of part of a family tradition and a livelihood, so I wanted to be a person who could help to represent those brands. Um, going, I don't want to say going against anything, but like instead of promoting something which I don't know where it comes from, I don't know what they put into it. Maybe right. it's laced with something and it's called Italian, I can say, this is what's good about Italy over here. This is the real Italy. This I mean, You might not be able to go to this small little place over here, but mm-hmm. I've been, I could tell you that you could lick off the floors and the, the ingredients are done the way they were done 500 years ago. And it's the best thing you can eat without going to Italy. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be good for you and, and great tasting. And so that was kind of where that started. And then because um, the Italian trade agency often invites me to go with them to Vini Italy or um, the Slow Food uh, olive oil um, conferences in Italy and things, I was meeting the best producers. So it was really easy to be able to not only to taste things, but to, they would say, you know, if you want to come and visit our place, mm. we can show you around, we can let you taste things. And it became a wonderful experience because you're literally part of a family's history. And you're, you know, my great grandfather started this because of this. And none of these producers are in it for money. Mm-hmm. Their money's a byproduct and yes, they want to be alive oh, and they want to do as well right. as they can, but they're all in it to pass down a tradition to make sure that they provide their product to the world mm-hmm. to, um, to keep, to keep history alive. And that's what I love. And so, um, as soon as, you know, it became possible, I met my, um, importer who at the time I didn't even realize he was importing. I just knew, um, Stefano Ferrari had this store in, in Bedford, Pennsylvania called Lifestyle. And it's just this gorgeous little import store, mm-hmm. like you're being in Milan, but you're in the middle of central Pennsylvania. Okay. And, um, he was, he had seen me in Italy at one of these olive oil conferences. He said, you know, you should have your own, uh, label. You should have your own olive oil. And I said, I would love that, but I have no idea how to take but care of it. Was that hard for you because because you sort of were already bringing other products to the forefront here right. in, well, especially in this region. Correct. You know, um, you would bring in olive oil makers or chefs. You, you would right. bring in people to showcase what they were doing. Exactly. So is that, was that hard for you to do? Because you were like, oh, I don't want to. I don't want to not give them something. No, not at all. Because actually a lot of them had stopped. Like the, especially I had one gentleman working with a great friend of mine who's Greek American. Mm-hmm. And I, I was always bringing in his oil, which I loved. It was a great, um, Koroniki olive oil and he stopped doing it. And so it was also like a little bit of, I couldn't get other people's stuff. Mm. And with the, and with the products that I brought in, that was also a, a caveat. I said, it has to be, I'm not going to bring in the same thing so-and-so is doing and sure. just put my face on it. Like it has to be unique. It has to make sense to me. I have to be able to tell, talk about the health properties of it, or is it a unique um, cultivar of olive that they don't have here yet in the States? Mm-hmm. Is it a special type of something that have a story behind it that was unique to me? And um, so are the products that you have, let's sure. can we get the box please? Do you guys mind handing that to me? Because since we're talking about it, we might as well, might as well look at it because it's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. So we now distribute this box through Ditalia. It's called okay. the Emiriolo Italian Premi uh, Essentials gift box. And okay. it tells you basically everything that you need um, to create great first course Italian foods. Because as you know, the first right. course is, is the main part of the meal uh-huh. um, in Italy. And that's what I want to be able to do. And they also had to have quality, but they had to have a health component and really great flavor. Well, and so because I'm sure a lot of people are like, I mean, I can go to my store and get pasta, right. you know, and, um, and I can go to my store and get olive oil. But right. Let's talk about, we're obsessed with this pasta, so let's talk about Thank this you. pasta. 
So these are the macaroni pugliesi, okay. which um, come from pasta marella, which is in Puglia, Italy. Mm-hmm. And they are made, they did this exclusively for me to do the 100% Senatore Capelli flour. Okay. So it's wheat flour, but it's a special variety of wheat, which is an ancient grain, mm-hmm. uh, low glycemic index. Um, which means it will not spike your sugar. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And they dry it very slowly, like they did the traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's got a high protein content, even though it is a wheat product. So mm-hmm. I love it because, again, it's the closest thing you could get to eating what my grandparents ate mm-hmm. and great-grandparents when they were still in, in Italy. And the little shape, uh, they're called macaroni pugliesi. They're kind of like an elongated like, fusilli. Right, like a little twist. So they grab the sauce mm-hmm. and and um, it's it's now I will say this pasta because it's thicker. Mm-hmm. It does take a little more time to cook. Yes, um, and it's it is a it's a meatier right. pasta. You can eat less of it and yeah, still be. You have really to chew delicious. it more. We and love it. We ordered a case of it. That's we're awesome. very obsessed with it. It's great. Now, but now is this specific to? Uh, Calabria? Like, what's the region? This one is in Puglia. Puglia, um, okay. And the Senatore Capelli flour is the chosen grain. They do have it in some places of Calabria as well, Mm -hmm. but Puglia is really known for making that particular grain. Okay. Um, And so that's why I went with with that one. And I will tell people, when you order this box, I mean, I remember when, you know, we got this pasta, I was like, I'm going to need two, like, I'm going to, this is not going to be enough. Right, right. But it's plenty for a more than plenty for two people. Because it's filling. It's, it's much so more filling, filling than it looks. And so delicious. Okay, so what else did we put in this box? We have the olive oil. So we talked a lot about this. So this is the... Right, because let's talk about olive oil. You said you carried a Greek olive oil, but this right. is Italian. But, you know, there's so many olive oils on the market. Yes. And people are confused by the olive oil because for a long time, people said, oh, well, if you're, you know cooking you don't need to use an expensive olive oil right. because it's it, it's just you're throwing it away kind mm-hmm. of thing mm-hmm. but you disagree with that sentiment so i do me. and it doesn't necessarily have to be expensive but i think you should always quality. use the best quality olive oil that you can extra virgin olive oil when you can because it goes into your body and a little bit of it goes a long way i have a whole chapter in my fifth book about all the benefits that olive oil can do for our bodies and our Mm -hmm. minds preventing a lot of diseases and tumors and things like that Mm -hmm. against inflammation um and just through cooking with it just for using it in your everyday life exactly i mean you could if you didn't want to cook with it you could just drink it or you could cook with it but if you get a couple tablespoons of good quality olive oil in your diet it definitely makes a difference because say you're putting it on um, spinach and you're sauteing Mm -hmm. spinach and olive oil and garlic um you will get the benefits of the spinach plus you get the benefits of the olive oil but then the olive oil the polyphenols the antioxidants in the olive oil helped in the nutrients help to coax more nutrients out of the spinach Mm -hmm. so you get more of the folate and the fiber and the different things that are in the spinach. See, I think that's such an important point. So yeah. if you're using a big name brand olive oil, mm-hmm. you really don't know how much olive oil is in there because other things that are not accredited, exactly. olive oil in the stores is one of them. Right. So it could say olive oil from Greece or olive oil from Italy, right. um, but you really don't know yeah. what how much of that is actually, you know, from the region. Exactly. And so therefore it could be a mix of lots of oils and other oils. Right. Which right. They might have been heated. Yeah. It could have been heated, which, right. you know, kind right. of did, does a lot of damage. It could mm-hmm. be older than we know. It could be, um, the, the olives couldn't, may, might not have been treated properly or pressed at the right time. There's so many different steps. So all olives are good from mm-hmm. all countries when they're, when they're on the little branch and they're ripe and they're ready to be picked. Right. No problem with them. Some, 
cultivars, there's about 1,200 now in the world varieties. Mm. Some naturally have a little bit more polyphenols than others, okay. um, but they're all good, healthy fats if they're picked at the right time, pressed at the right time, mm-hmm. stored at the right time, and consumed within the right time. But all of those other variables get changed depending upon how you know the mass of the production is or what people are doing. Sure. So tell us about this one. With these, there are two different cultivars of olives, the Gentili di Chiatti, which is traditional of Abruzzo, and the Intosso, which is also indigenous to um, Abruzzo. They're just recently being rediscovered. Mm. The Gentili di Chietti. So heirloom, heirloom, yes. heirloom olives. Exactly. Cool. The Gentili di Chietti has uh, the word gentile means soft or kind in Italian. Mm-hmm. It's a, it really is lighter on the palate. The intosso is very strong and very green and very mm-hmm. bright, which I, I personally like. But we added a little bit of the Gentili di Chietti because I think it's a little bit much for like the, the regular, bite. yeah, for the regular palate. Um, it's got a 0.2% acidity rate. Mm-hmm. So with extra virgin olive oil, in order to be uh, legally defined is that in the U.S. it has to have 0.8% acidity or less, mm. minus 0.2. So it's very, very low. Okay. Um, a lot of the ones at the supermarket don't even test, or you don't even know, and you can't know. A lot of it is so much marketing, yeah. right? It's just so for people, we all probably have heard of extra virgin. Sure. Or extra, extra virgin. But what does that really mean? That's all just about the acidity about- rate. So, right? Right. so again, it, it's to deal with the acidity rate. Mm-hmm. So if it's 0.8% or less, they can legally call it extra virgin olive oil. And if it's more than 0.8, then it becomes a virgin. Okay. And then at like um, 1.2 or something, it becomes pure, which is basically like the stuff you use for making soap or you know other things. Okay. Um, but extra virgin, so you want a 0.8% acidity rate or less, you, but you're going to be hard pressed for people to be able to find that out with a lot of the companies. Mm. If it's from a, a single estate in Italy and Spain and Greece, and Morocco, whatever, it's going to be that. And you don't have to worry because that's what single estates Well, and I think that's so important. So uh, on this show, we talk a lot about that with wine. Right. Um, You know, that single estate wines, it's just from that estate. So you're not getting grapes from other places. It's literally coming from what you're looking at. And the same can apply to olive oil. So you may be paying a little bit more for a single estate olive oil, but you know that it's all from the same place. Right. And you're getting that that farmer's olives pressed. Exactly. You're getting flavor. You're knowing that they're treated well because they put their name on it. And mm-hmm. in Italy, this serious offense, if you say something's extra virgin and it's not, you're really going to get into trouble. And they can, they go and they check and they, mm. you know, it's they're kept up on in America. You could put you could put this and put the word extra virgin on it, and no one's going to do anything. No, right. Um, so that's a that's a little problem. But we, now we have the North American uh, Olive Oil Association, mm. and they're working to put some controls and some labels. So hopefully that will continue to grow. Um, but you know, to be able to trace those things is really important, and to use it within um, as, as close to the harvest time as you can. Mm. So like harvest usually is in the fall, it, depending upon, even within Italy, it changes depending upon the microclimate and the sea and the mountains and things. But mm-hmm. it could be uh, September, it could be early October, it could be early November. Mine is usually end of October, early November. Then by the time they pick it, press it, bottle it, you're talking like December, and then it comes on the, the container to America. So I usually don't have the, the last year's harvest until the beginning of the new year, mm-hmm. but that's the freshest one. That's the most recent one. Okay. And if you consume it, within that year, you get all of the antioxidants, you know, that are available. After a year, you start to lose about 30% per year. Right. I mean, it is a fresh food product. So these things don't last forever. And I think, again, for people who live in the States, we're so um, 
conditioned for stabilized food. Right. That food's not supposed to go to bad. Do you know what yes. I mean? That food's supposed yes. to last. And it's that's really not natural. Do I really have to throw my spices away after a year? Do I really yes, have you to? Do. <laughs> yes, you do. They're ineffective. <laughs> it's so funny. I know. You know? It's weird. And then they wonder why the food doesn't taste like anything. Um, okay. So I want to talk about one or two more products in here. Sure. But then I want to get to the current book and talk about the future books you're doing. Okay. Let's talk about the vinegar. Uh, so this is vinegar, but it says dressing. Yes. But it's, so tell me It's about a white that. balsamic. And so I changed, and the, with a new label, I'm changing it to condiment because okay. dressing in America means a certain thing different yes. than what dressing means in Italy. It's just white balsamic vinegar, meaning okay. it's just the must from Trebbiano grapes. Mm. That's it. There's no caramel. There's no sugar. There's no, and if you look at commercially prepared, um, balsamics, whether they're white or, or full colored, they are going to have a lot of caramel in them, a lot of sugar to give them the sweet taste. Mm -hmm. This is very sweet, but it's just done but from the natural. aging. Just natural, just the one grape. There's but nothing so the else in it. The real balsamic, not the white, yes. the natural balsamic uh -huh. from Modena. Uh -huh, uh, is it Modena? Yes. Yes. So from Modena, that that does not have additives in it, no. right? When it's if it's done directly. right, it's all that one. The reason it has color is because it has different grapes in it, like the Lambrusco and and mm. other grapes. So it has that beautiful dark rich but color. That's an excellent use of Lambrusco. Yes, <laughs> and they um you know age it in different barrels over a different amount of time. So it's only the aging that makes it sweet, and that's why it's so expensive. Mm. But um to the to the unknowing palate, you know, caramel can taste that way, and it's a lot easier. If you don't have a one year old balsamic, add some caramel add some sugar to it and then mm -hmm. say, oh, I like the taste of this one better than that one. No, <laughs> you like the taste of vinegar and caramel, not the, the taste the of The actual vinegar. One. And for one moment, can we just take a sidebar and talk about balsamic glaze? Sure. Because when I was in Italy about 10 years ago, we were staying in Umbria and we were at a house and they had a bottle of balsamic glaze, mm -hmm. which like at the time, yeah, that I had not really seen before. Sure. And now... It's kind of ubiquitous. You can get it anywhere, but is right. it just, is it just junk or is it boiled down? No, balsamic no, you can vinegar? get really good Saba that's boiled down, um, balsamic vinegar and mm -hmm. that, you know, works wonderful on meats. And oh, well, it's like a chicken. great finishing. Yes. You know, like I just do a little drizzle over veggies or, you know, after a dish is done, just a little drizzle. It's so yummy, but I want to make sure what I'm buying right. is wholesome and sure. not junk. Just look for the ingredients to make sure there are no additives. Mm -hmm. And at that level, it should tell you aged this way, you know. Mm, that makes sense. But it is just boiled down, right? Is that yes, kind of what it is? Definitely. All right, great. All right. Last thing, let's talk sure. about, I don't know, do you want to talk about the rice or do you want to talk about the, the condiment? Sure. Let's talk about the pesto. Okay, let's this talk about the pesto. One. Okay. So this is great, goes great with the pasta. It's a sun-dried red pesto mm -hmm. and it's made from uh, the Anfoso company in Liguria. So, mm -hmm. you know, Liguria, Genova, this is where they get all the Genovese basil. It's a DOP Genovese basil in it. Right. But also the sun-dried uh, red tomatoes and their olive oil from the Anfoso company, which is made from the Tajasca cultivar. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, very buttery um, kind of olive flavor and the pine nuts and it's great. You can put it on crostini, you can put it with this pasta. So we did. We put it on Christina. You can, I could put it with, with, with risotto, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes an eggplant. Um, but you know, you, leftover meat, leftover seafood, you're not sure what to do. Just put a little bit of that on it and it and has a whole new good. life. Yeah. I love that. Okay. So you decided to do this box. Yes. Tell me a little bit about that and why you wanted to do your own products. Sure. Because it does go hand in hand with all your books. Right. And you also do travel. Yes. Like you've taken people to Italy. So can we just sort of, put a cap on all that and how it all works? Sure. 
<laughs> so it's all about the experience. Yeah, well, I used to teach, and I, which I don't do anymore. And people mm-hmm. keep saying, "When are you going to teach?" And I'm like, "Do you really know how much I'm doing?" Right, I don't have but, any time. But uh, no. So um, it's all about bringing the experience to people because they would always ask me, "Once you start writing books." you're a guide all of a sudden and everybody wants to know where to go here, where to right. eat, what, what I mean, to buy, like I what to do. Right? Yeah. I mean, and so it's like, authority. I might as well, you know, really offer it. And, and I, cause I was always offering somebody else's product. So it's like, mm-hmm. I, I would, I would also like to be able to offer my own product. So that's how the kind of thing grew because you can't go to Italy. You can eat this or you go to Italy, but you want to come home and still go back. You can right. have this um, with the tours. It also became a way of, you know, looking at people and seeing how they're hopefully they get a little bit of joy in their life after a couple hour class and they mm-hmm. maybe they learn how to make pasta from scratch for the first time or they learn that you know eating more planning their meals around fiber like these delicious vegetables instead of meat might you know add a couple years onto their life or something mm-hmm. um and they have these light bulb moments and i said to myself you know if i were able to take them to to italy to greece to morocco to Turkey and to be able to spend more time with them and show them the way people are living this way, not mm-hmm. just like from an outsider, of, you know, watch this, but we have um, scholars come in and give presentations. We go to co- actual community events. We get people from the community that do things with us. Well, I think what's so important with travel is to hear the stories of the people right. in the land that you're traveling, right? And I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of shy about tour guides and things like that. Right. But you, you can look at the art, but if you don't know the story to it, it loses its richness. Exactly. I mean, you're, or you're losing what you could really be learning from it. Same thing goes for food on your plate or the wine that you're drinking. When you travel, right. knowing about where you are, the history and, and why, it's on your plate the way it is is so important. Definitely, definitely. Because at the end of the day, that's what makes me want to eat well. Mm-hmm. It's not just to eat well. It's because, well, if I eat it this way, then I'm honoring so and so, and and I think that's really important, you know, as well as the people we're eating with. Um, even for example, when we go to Morocco, a lot of times we go to the same places with different groups. Mm-hmm. We continuously, even though there are two of us as guides, we work with other guides, local on the ground. One to handle logistics, but also because, you know, sometimes that guide will stop and do something inadvertently. Like it's just part of something that he does in his daily life. Right. And that little action will encapsulate like the whole culture. And you can turn back to the group and say, do you see that? Do you know why they did it? Do you know? Because that dates back to this, this and this. And they're like, what? Isn't that fascinating? I love that. Yeah. That is really cool. So now obviously we had the pandemic. Right. So that put a little um, kink in travel, but is that something that you're still looking to do? I know you're writing all these books, but is that something that's coming with the books? Like, are you putting them hand in hand? What is that? Definitely. So like even the photography in my books now is from tours. So this, this cover of this Mediterranean lifestyle book is from a place we take people in Icaria, Mm -hmm. um, in Greece. And so I, and, and the products, instead of just saying, you know, buy good quality, this, I can say buy my or other good quality, which is nice. Um, still doing small group tours to um, Greece and Morocco, meaning mm-hmm. like if people have a group of friends, coworkers, family members, they all want to go together as a unit, let us know when we'll make the dream trip happen the trip. for you. 
Um, and I, I like it better that way than just working with one off, like, Hey, we're going on May 14th to May 18th. Do you want to mm-hmm. come with us? Um, it, it, it's nice for those places and it lets people, it gives them a little bit more of an intimate experience. Um, so we're doing that. And then, um, I have the Calabria trip, um, also coming up this year. So if anybody's mm-hmm. interested in Calabria, they can let me know. And that I, I work with the Librandi winery in Calabria. Um, the, the wife of one of the sons has a company called Tasty Tours. So we design the tours together and, uh, it's really, really wonderful. I bet. It sounds uh, fantastic. It just sounds like such an interesting way to see the country through the eyes of the people who live there, right? Yes. Which is yes. the whole point. All right. Let's get into your books. Sure. So your newest one is Mediterranean Lifestyle for Dummies. Correct. Which I'm sure a lot of people are like, how dumb do you have to be to not know <laughs> Mediterranean Lifestyle? But as we talked during the beginning of the show, we talked about the fact that this is not a diet like you lose weight. I mean, you can lose weight, but it's really a way of life. Right. So can we talk about some of the tenets of the Mediterranean lifestyle and how you, I mean, this book is so comprehensive. Thank you. I mean, you better be smarter than dumb if you're reading it because there's a lot of intel in here. So Thank can you. Can we talk about how how you take people through it? Sure. Well, I wanted to talk about every single thing that gets left out of most Mediterranean diet discussions mm. and why it doesn't work. Because I ran into a friend of mine a couple of years ago and she said, hey, you know, my husband had a heart attack. I don't understand what's going on. We're doing the Mediterranean diet. How could he still have a heart attack? And, you know, what am I doing wrong? And she told me about what she was eating and from a, from a nutritionist perspective, she wasn't eating anything wrong, but all of this stuff was missing. And I, I believe this is what makes that the, eating pattern the cultural productive. Component, right, the eating right. together, the exactly. being outside. Eating together, fresh air. You know, nowadays, the, and it's all, most of these things are free. So it's like just a matter of we take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. In the book, I mentioned, for example, Washington, D.C. has as many sunny days as Barcelona, Spain does. Mm. But we don't call it sunny D.C. You know, like we call <laughs> sunny Spain. We don't call sunny D.C. We don't go out hardly ever. I mean, I don't mean us, but like a lot right. of people don't ever go out. And it's like, we should be. There's the green effect now. There's the blue effect. 10 minutes of greenery, like, you know, whether it's the lawn or the the trees or seeing green has a really positive effect on our brain and on our psyche. Mm. The blue effect, whether we see water, it could be a, a lake or, you know, anything in the blue, the sky has the same kind of effect on our body. So people in the Mediterranean spend a lot of time outdoors um, getting that. We can do that. Vitamin D. Um, walking outside, you know, doing as many outdoor activities as possible, as many activities that you like. And it doesn't have to be the gym. It could be gardening. It could be going for a stroll after dinner. But I think to your point, um, and while I'm all for the gym, because a hard workout is great, but there, the natural way of being in good shape is being outside. Right. And so right. like for me during the pandemic, I mean, I was, I was a gym goer. I used to take these dance classes that I loved. And when the pandemic happened, I was like, okay, what am I going to do? Now, I always loved walking and I loved hiking, but I never considered that my like source of exercise. Right. But now I walk probably five times a week, like six miles a day. That's awesome. And I, there's such a, a general shift for me because even when it's cold outside and I really can't stand the cold, I mean, I'm such a baby, but, um, being outside, I literally cannot imagine going to work out in a gym again. Like I just, that way of exercising is completely unappealing to me. I like being outside. I like being under a blue sky or even a, a dreary day. Like just being it's out there 
it really changes everything. It's way more mind clearing yes. than any time at the gym has ever been. Well, it's that's brilliant, you know. And you came to the conclusion on your own. Mm-hmm. One of the one of the quotes that I have in here is from a study where they found that 20 minutes of outdoor exposure, just being outdoors, has a more positive effect on people than the most powerful antipsychotic drug. Oh wow! Just 20 minutes of being outdoors, mm-hmm. and it's like, why not give ourselves that? You know what I mean? If we mm-hmm. can. So those are some of the aspects. And also um, the siesta. You know, I've got, there's a lot of articles. Okay, I've yeah. Done. Let's talk about the siesta. Okay. I'm not a napper. <laughs> I'm going to cut the cake. Okay. Talking. But I will be honest. Like for me, I don't get the siesta because I feel like if I stop, I'm down for the count. So for me, I, and you know, when we were last in Italy, you know, everything closes at like one o'clock and it, you have no choice but to take it slow and easy. So talk about the siesta, the fact that it actually still happens, because I feel like there's a myth out there where people are like, yeah, people don't really do it anymore, it but doesn't, they do. They sh- well, the traditional culture does, and I'm trying to promote the traditional culture. So right. for those who don't, I want I don't want that to last too long. I want them to come back, because a lot of places they still do, like in Athens, you can go to a very, you know, a hotel like this, that's very exclusive and in a wonderful area, and they'll say, you know, the pool is closed from this area, please respect our local community hours of the siesta. There's a mayor in Spain that actually forbids people to go out during siesta hours. And I know we're far from that in the United right. States, but we could make little little twitches to be able to make but a But siesta is not just sleeping. Siesta is also the meal. Right. You have lunch with your family or lunch with your friends or whatever. Hopefully and the biggest just, meal. Right. right. And then, then it's downtime. Right. 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 And, and, you know, it could be a five minute nap, a 10 minute nap. And I tell people, even if you can't do that, you could do like yoga from your, from your office or so, just something to like have that little bit of time for yourself of regrouping. And they found it increases productivity 100%, not like 5%, 10 mm-hmm. So even for, you know, if you're the most diehard person running a big corporation, like you have, it's in your best interest right. to give people some downtime after a meal in the afternoon. Well, and that also relates to how what's going on at nighttime, right? So, you know, first of all, people do not in Europe go out to eat the way Americans go out to eat. Americans dine out way more. Thank you so much uh, than um, than our European counterparts. Um, I think I, I don't have the data in front of me, but we go out probably twice, if not three times as much, mm-hmm. uh, for quick bites, fast food, fast casual, uh, dinner, whereas going out is more of an occasion for those. But when you, they do go out, especially in Italy, I mean, dinner starts at 10, right? You know, I mean, if you have eight o'clock reservations, you walk into the restaurant and you're like, right. nobody's here. And that's exactly. because they don't eat until 10 or they don't get there till 10. They right. eat at like 1130 or 12. So it, that whole that whole way of living is so entirely different. Yes. Yes, it is. It is definitely the Mediterranean way of life is definitely skewed a little bit later. So we'd have to make some adaptions in the United right. States, you know, depending on where you are. Usually the meal times in Italy, for example, are like one, one thirty, two, depending on the north or south for lunch. And then um, dinner will start at eight. Okay. And it could be like nine, ten, but you usually sit at the table for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a saying, "Alla tavola non si invecchia," which means at the table you don't get old. And so lunch could be three hours for, I mean, on the weekend, not mm-hmm. during the week. You know, like on a Sunday or something on a holiday. Um, the dinner, same thing. People really like to take their time and like enjoy the food, and that's part of this too. There's a whole chapter on enjoying food because through that propaganda that you mentioned. So mm-hmm. you know 
brilliantly because a lot of people leave that out we forget that people have been trained to be this way it's not like people there's nothing shameful about being in america and having some issues with taking a nap or spending a long time at the table there's a there's a reason for it um but there it's like the the food and this approach toward is like you know yes there's a little bit of sugar in this cake but there's dates and there's blood oranges and there's extra virgin olive oil and I get to share it with you right. and, you know, be together. And so the more of the focus is on that and like food is medicine, not, mm-hmm. not food is an enemy. Whereas in the United States, a lot of times or in more uh, Northern European cultures, if someone is on a diet, they'll be like, I can't look at food. No, because wait, I'm it's on a, a lot diet. of no. Yeah. So I have Mary Beth Albright on the show recently and she has a new book oh, she's out. Wonderful. She is wonderful. I just yes. adore her. What a personality. Um, but we talked about the negativity around food, right? Um, especially in American culture, and that it's all about it's bad. Oh, I ate bad today. I didn't, you know, I ate too many carbs, or I did too much this, or I did too much that. And even my husband, who I feel like after 14 years of doing this show, Hootie and the Beast, that he knows better. But you know, he'll say, "Oh, we eat too much pasta. We can't eat so much pasta." Mm-hmm. And I was like, "You can eat." Pasta every day. Pasta is not the problem. The problem is, is how much pasta you eat when I make pasta, pasta. right? It's about the portion control and being satiated with the correct portion, Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I just think we're all screwed up here. Um, and there's just so much negative attention on food at which takes away the pleasure of food, right? Which is how the Italians live. Definitely. Right. Yes. Okay. So. This book is out. What's coming up? Because I know you have a bunch of books coming up. Sure. So I have on March 15th, I'll be releasing quick and easy um, Mediterranean diet recipes. Mm -hmm. That's that's already on Amazon, March 14th. And then on May 2nd, Diabetes for Dummies. So it's actually a medical book. I'm co-writing with um, an author from England, Dr. Simon Poole, who's also Mm -hmm. a Mediterranean diet expert. And then uh, in the fall, we're going to be doing a uh, diabetes nutrition and meal planning type of a recipe, but a really good one that, you know, anybody could use and eat well Mm -hmm. and enjoy life and you know, you just happen to have diabetes kind of thing. Right. Okay. Well, so before we wrap up, you made this sure. beautiful cake. Thank you. And I don't, one of the things we actually really haven't talked about is what kind of food is the Mediterranean mm-hmm. lifestyle? So like, let's talk about what you made for me oh, today. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> so I made this because it's a treat and, you know, hospitality, there's a chapter of, on that too, is big, big in the Mediterranean diet. I'm digging it. You, you might not eat dessert every day, but you get to see this friend who you don't get to see very often as so you honor it with a sweet. This mm. is made with uh, dates and walnuts, blood oranges, my extra virgin olive oil, mm. um, and eggs, a little bit of sugar. So as far as a dessert goes, it's, it's pretty healthful. Mm-hmm. Um, got a lot of nutrients and, the, and that recipe is in this book. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to tell people if they want to start Mediterranean lifestyle for the new thing, forget about all of those, you know, I mean, you could do power bowls and wraps and stuff if that's what you want, but you know, how many people, how many times have you seen anybody in the Mediterranean eating a power bowl or a wrap? Um, there's so many beautiful, easy, simple recipes to make that are traditional and that honor a culture. Mm-hmm. So I always tell people, start with the vegetables. Mm-hmm. Try to get as many servings of fresh fruits and vegetables as you can in your diet per day, especially if they're like the rainbow colors with a lot of dark leafy greens. Sure. They're going to be good for everybody. Plan your meal about around what's in season because what is in season is going to have more nutrients for us. Mm-hmm. Our body craves those nutrients more. They're fresher. They're local. Um, and then add in you know, the, the protein. 
don't think of the protein first. Like, don't say I'm going to have uh, roast Steak. beef. And right. then, no, it's like, you know, I've got this great broccoli, so I can turn it into gnocchi or risotto or pasta or whatever. And then maybe I'll have a little fish. And then, mm-hmm. you know, and I think looking at food that way and also including the things that you like the most, right? you know, because um, a lot of people leave that out. But in terms of variety and if, in types of cuisines, you could do Spanish or Israeli or you know, Moroccan or mm-hmm. Tunisian or whatever you want. And it, the the inspirations are endless. So like, I, I don't want people to feel like if they get one of these other books that has some salads and some power bowls, that it's either that or you're not doing the Mediterranean diet. It's like, no, you've got a lot of great, great um, well, cultures, right? Cultures heritage. and cuisines yeah. to yeah. choose from, right? And I do. I mean, I really, I'm a big believer in portion control. Um, I think you know, America is like bigger is better, and that's not great for our diets. Um, and but I don't. I really do not believe that there is, other than really heavily processed food, because one of the things you say in your book is about yeah. cereals. And yes. I remember when I first saw that, I was like. Cereal is processed, but that's not what you mean by cereal. Right, right. Cereal as grain, mm-hmm. like like a natural grain, like wheat, mm-hmm. like barley, um, you know, those kinds of grains. Well, plus now there's so many grains available on the mar- market, you right. know, like Aramanth right. and Faro. I mean, there's so many great grains, quinoa, you know, that people can really use in a variety of ways now. And it's so healthy for you. That's a great point. They're inexpensive. Mm-hmm. They're filling. And I, I tell people also, even though we've had all this pastor propaganda and things, at the same time, it's never been easier to eat well in the United States mm-hmm. because you get all these products from everywhere. You, you've got great organic um, produce that can be delivered to our door and, and farmer's markets all around. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to do it, you can. You Excellent. know what I mean? The help is out there. Excellent. All right, Amy, tell everybody, please, where they can find you on Instagram and online sure. and on your books and your products, everything. There's so much. Thank you. Everywhere. So online, um, my website is amyriolo.com. So it's mm-hmm. A-M-Y-R-I-O-L-O.com. Uh-huh. On Instagram, I'm on Instagram. Uh, the the products are Amy Riolo Selections, and they can be found at Ditalia. So it's mm-hmm. Ditalia, D-I-T-A-L-I-A.com. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear from anyone. Excellent. Well, I really appreciate you coming in today and everything you you heard here on Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. You can find in our show notes. And of course, you can find everything on the list, areyouwanted.com. I want to remind everyone, um, you can subscribe. You can watch us on YouTube. You can listen to us on your favorite podcast channel, wherever you download your podcast from. Um, And you want to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And, you know, pop me some questions if you're interested in what Amy and I talked about today or on any of the shows, I am happy to get back to you because there's so much incredible content out there. I want to thank you all for joining me today. I want to thank you for for having me me. for all this time and bringing me that delicious cake. You should make this cake. A couple quick uh, housekeeping notes for all of you uh, foodies out there. Spring has come and restaurants are popping open like those daffodils that are coming out of the ground. But staff shortages is still real. It's still a thing. Uh, And it's going to be around for a while. So just Take your kindness pills before you dine out. Remember that the people who have you in their restaurant establishments want you to have a good time. They want you to come back. Nobody's looking for a battle. So take a deep breath, get out there and enjoy and have a delicious week. Produced by HeartCast Media.